Okay, let's get underway. Uh, welcome. My name is Mac Owens. I'm the Dean of Academics here at the Institute of World Politics. Welcome to you all. Let me start by giving a little commercial about uh, IWP for those of you who don't know anything about it. Uh, we are an independent graduate school of national security affairs. Uh, we uh, offer three full master's degrees. So we have, uh, in addition, we have an executive and professional master's degrees and 18 certificates. So, um, know anybody who wants to come to graduate school, let us know. Okay, it's my pleasure to introduce our guest today. This is, uh, this is Michael Walsh week at IWP. All Michael Walsh, all time, all the time, basically. Uh, he spoke last week on his book, The Devil's Pleasure Palace. Uh, today he's speaking about the Trump phenomenon I was told uh, I was giving. I was supposed to give a lecture in, in uh, at University of Texas in May, and the fellow who um, invited me said, "Well, what do you want to talk about?" And I said, "Well, I'll talk about what I normally talk about, which is civil-military relations." And he said, "You'll get a bit, really big crowd of students if you put Trump or ISIS in there." So I said, "Okay, civil-military relations in the era of Trump." Okay, that was fun. But uh, Trump, we were pretty good. To, uh, group here. Tomorrow Michael is going to be speaking on the Hill. We have a, a quarterly Capitol Hill speakers series and he's going to be talking about the relationship between culture and, um, and politics. Now I guess most of you here probably don't really need any kind of an introduction to, um, to Michael. He's, uh, I refer to him as my favorite polymath. He knows everything. I don't know where he gets, I don't want he has time to sleep but that's up to him. Uh, he uh, is uh, <laughs> formerly a correspondent for Time Magazine, when Time Magazine was a real magazine. Uh, he was, music, among other things, a music critic, a foreign, uh, a foreign correspondent, spent substantial time behind the Iron Curtain, and in his spare time he writes novels like All the Saints, which won, a, won, a, won some kind of prize. Uh, you, all your stuff wins prizes, so... Um, also a screenwriter and when he's not doing that he writes books on culture like The Devil's Pleasure Palace. Uh, one of the reasons I asked him to talk about this this time around is because uh, he was one of the very few people who actually thought that this fellow Trump had any kind of a chance. And he actually, you know, you can say about it and whisper it, you know, when nobody's listening, but you actually write a piece in, in the New York Post to say, Here's are some of the reasons that Trump could actually win, and everything, ha ha ha, until of course uh, November eighth. So uh, anyway, so uh, I, I ask him to talk about essentially what he identified, why he was able to see some of these things that other people were not able to see. And uh, so with that, I hope you'll join me in welcoming Michael Walsh. <laughs> Thank you, Mac. Thank you, uh, IWP. Thank you all for coming today. Uh, I thought we'd talk about something non-controversial like Donald Trump. So uh, feel free to jump in. I'll give a short presentation and read uh, some of my profound wisdom that was published in the New York Post, and then uh, happy to field questions and uh, provide a few answers uh, uh, after, we, after we finish here. So let me just give you the background of the New York Post uh, relationship with me. I was a 
weekly, uh, in fact, bi-weekly, bi semi-weekly, whatever twice a week is, semi-weekly, semi I guess, uh, columnist for the Post uh, for a while, and then I went off to do some other things, mostly in Hollywood. And uh, about a year ago, the year and a half ago now, the Post uh, Sunday editor, Steve Lynch, asked me to start writing about the Trump phenomenon. Uh, and he came to me rather than a political journalist, because I'm not a political journalist, I'm a culture writer. And he wanted to cover the Trump phenomenon from the point of view of someone outside the Beltway, not a Washingtonian, not a regular political journalist, but with journalistic, obviously, experience. So uh, being in a suicidal frame of mind, I thought, that sounds like fun, and let's do it. So we started it about uh, right after Christmas, right around Christmas, uh, a year before the election, and continued it for just about a full year, hope hoping to explain why Trump had a chance. It was really that simple to start. Not to, I should hasten to add, endorse him or to advocate for any of the Trump policies. That wasn't my job. My job was purely analytical. So more or less twice a month, uh, Steve and I, who is now, Steve is, by the way, now the editor-in-chief of the New York Post. He graduated up to the big chair. Um, would come up with a topic, come up with a take, and then uh, get it in print in the uh, Sunday op-ed section. Uh, as it turned out, we were right, which is always kind of gratifying when you stick your neck out as, as much as, as we did. Um, but we were right for the right reasons. <clears throat> and those are the reasons I want to talk about today and sort of my approach to political journalism and why I think that the Beltway establishment journalists missed this, and, and they missed it by a mile. As you all know, uh, November 9th uh, last year was a, a brutal uh, wake-up call for some people and a cause for joyous celebration for other people. And I said to someone, says, what's, what's it like uh, on the conservative side of this ledger? I said, it's like the... Uh, the end of Boris Gudhoff, where <laughs> Boris falls down the stairs and all the peasants cheer that the dictator is finally gone. So, um, I promise not to sing any choruses of Slava, Slava, Slava from Boris Gudhoff, but let me give you an example of what the way we started this, and I'll just uh, use two or three pieces to kind of walk us through this. Uh, we started on December 26, 2015 with a story in the Post. They're all listed. You can easily find them at the New York Post website under me, and this is the whole uh, panoply of uh, political columns just there. To hear the patronizing wise men of the Republican Party tell it, anyone who would vote for Donald Trump for president must be deranged. Now, that statement may still hold true today, so I'm not arguing with the the validity of that lead, but this is how it looked to me uh, at that time. Trumpkins, they call them, mental midgets and xenophobic troglodytes who've crawled out from their survivalist caves in order to destroy the Beltway establishment. How their resentful attitude galls the crack cadres of campaign consultants who brought conservatives half-hearted standard bearers like John McCain and Mitt Romney to do sham battle against Barack Obama in 2008 and 2012, and then to return to the safety of the U.S. Senate and a beachfront mansion in La Jolla. That's our two previous Republican candidates, as you know. The peasants are revolting. And all on behalf of a bloviating billionaire 
whose conservatism and party loyalty are suspect. So that was the laying out the case against Trump. Uh, I must say, I, I lived, moved to New York uh, in 1981, and <clears throat> oddly enough, I never met uh, the current president. We, I worked for Time Magazine in those days, and you know, you cross paths with a lot of people, obviously, in Manhattan, and uh, uh, yet I never met Mr. Trump. I do remember one thing about Trump, and this is actually where my little warning bell went off when Trump uh, was striving for the nomination, and that was the Woolman Rink in New York. Does anybody remember the Woolman Rink here? Some of you must be New Yorkers, yeah. Woolman Rink was a, is, is an ice skating rink down at the southern end of Central Park. And uh, you know, as you know, 1981, 1980 was sort of the end of the French Connection period in New York City where graffiti was everywhere, the subways didn't work, the parks were filled with drug dealers, it was just awful. And one of the things that didn't work was the Woolman Rink. And Mayor Ed Koch at the time, who I think talked a good game but never actually did anything, tried to get the Woolman Rink fixed up. And it went through the usual bureaucratic channels and it cost a fortune and nothing happened and it didn't work. And all of a sudden this brash billionaire said, I'll fix the, the Woolman Rink for you. And I'll do it in three months and it'll come in under budget. You'll get every penny of the profits. What's not to like? And he did. He did. And Donald Trump at that point in New York was a hero. Everybody liked Donald Trump because he had stuck it to the political establishment. He had actually accomplished something and people were skating on the wall and rink again. So that was the thing that told you if you were looking, if you knew the history of this man in New York City, that something was happening. Now, after months of whistling past the graveyard of Trump's seemingly inexorable rise and assuring themselves that his candidacy will collapse as voters come to their senses, this is December 15 now, a CNN poll released Wednesday showing Trump now lapping the field has the GOP establishment in full meltdown form. The survey shows Trump with nearly 40% of the primary vote trailed by Ted Cruz at 18, Ben Carson, Marco Rubio at 10, and the also-rans, including the great GOP hope Jeb Bush, limping along far behind. The panic was best articulated rather last week in the Daily Beast by GOP consultant Rick Wilson, who I battle with on Twitter on a regular basis. I actually like Rick. We've never met, but we, we, we fence a lot on Twitter. Uh, who wrote that Trump supporters, and this is, articulates the mainstream beltway crack cadres of campaign consultants. That's spelled with K's, by the way, just like crack cadres of campaign consultants. Um, this articulated what their uh, attitude was. That Trump supporters, Trump supporters, now not Trump himself, but Trump supporters, that is all these, these cave dwellers who might be tempted to vote for this, manifestly unqualified person, put the entire conservative movement at risk of being hijacked and destroyed by a bellowing billionaire with poor impulse control and a profoundly superficial understanding of the world, walking, talking, comments section of the fever swamp sites. That's what Rick called the guy who is now so stupid that he's living at 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue. How about that? Some might take that as a backhanded compliment. Can the GOP really be so out of touch 
with the legions of out-of-work Americans, many of whom don't show up in the official unemployment rate because they've given up looking for work, with the returning military vets frustrated with lawyer-driven, politically correct rules of engagement that have tied their hands in a fight against a mortal enemy, with those who in the wake of Paris and San Bernardino massacres by Muslims reasonably fear an influx of culturally alien refugees and migrants from the Middle East, with those who fear for their own families' futures and the future of the country as founded. In other words, and here's the key, has the junior wing of what I've taken to calling the permanent bipartisan fusion party, which has occupied Washington for uh, since the first Bush administration, ably embodied by Mitch McConnell and Paul Ryan, have they forsaken even token opposition to the progressive ethos? Can it be true that everybody's fondest wish for campaign 16, and this to me was the deal breaker, is the dynastic restoration battle of Clinton versus Bush. So this is where I started my watching the Trump campaign carefully to see how it would go. And as it developed, we noticed a few things about Donald Trump. That was, every time the media said he was finished, he wasn't. Every time he made some gaffe, he got stronger rather than weaker. When he threw rallies, thousands and thousands and tens of thousands of people came. When Hillary Clinton threw rallies, nobody came, unless Beyonce was with her, or Michelle Obama. So you thought, something is going on here. But at this point in the campaign, in December, it was clear that the entire Republican establishment was now going to move against this man that they would not go quietly into that good night. The reason they eventually lost is they got started too late. And then they found out that their normal vampire killing stakes and silver bullets on werewolves didn't work on this guy. And then by then it was too late for them to rally. But the crack cadres, as I like to call them, that's Rick Wilson and Mike uh, Murphy and, uh, you know, all the Republican, Karl Rove, of course, uh, people others who make their living off of moving candidates around the chessboard. I often say like Republican candidates are like baseball managers, you know, they get fired and then they go from the Cubs to the White Sox and to the Red Sox and to the Texas Rangers and eventually their career will end, you know, somewhere ignominiously like the Houston Astros. But uh, they, no offense to anybody from Houston, I can't even handle the fact that they're in the American League, which is just horrible, but it's another story entirely. Anyway, they, they, keep, they keep working until they get finally retired. Uh, and they were uniformly against Trump. And... As we watched Trump go through the campaign, he, he didn't spend any money. Murphy blew through $100 million of Jeb Bush's money. For what? What did he get? Three votes? I mean, there's some ridiculous low number of, of, of uh, votes for the primary. And I thought, again, something is happening here, quoting uh, Bob Dylan, the Nobel Prize winning poet, Bob Dylan. Um, something's happening here, Mr. Jones, you uh, but you don't know what it is, do you, Mr. Jones? Even the President of the United States, Obama, uh, waded in, cheekily blaming economic stresses and flatlining wages for Trump's groundswell. As the left watched Trump, they thought they had him right where they wanted him. It was like the Super Bowl. 
And what was the score at halftime? 28 to 3. Somebody said to me, hey, what do you think uh, Belichick's saying to the Patriots? Somebody's saying, hey, guys, we got them right where they want them. They have no chance now. And of course, they didn't. So every time Trump did something that the left thought that's the end of him, he had them right where, they wanted, where he wanted them. Uh, Obama said, particularly blue-collar men have had a lot of trouble in this new economy where they are no longer getting the same bargain that they got when they were going to a factory. This is from a man who's never set foot inside a factory, needless to say, except as a campaigner, and able to support their families on a single paycheck. Somebody like Mr. Trump is taking advantage of that. As the campaign wore on, we we began to sense the groundswell of what eventually turned out to be the shy Trump voter, the white working class uh, ethnics from the upper Midwest and the German, Scandinavian, uh, Eastern European white ethnics in that part of the country that had once been very solidly democratic, the Irish in Pennsylvania, uh, as well the Polish and the Polish coal miners in Pennsylvania. These groups were being told by the Democrats, as you see from that quote from Obama, that they were not really welcome in, in a party that had become the party of very wealthy, well-educated liberals and the poor working class, or even the non-working poor. Whereas that great middle had been abandoned by the Democrats, and it was Trump's genius, again, willy-nilly perhaps, to say, oh, there's an underserviced voting block. And it just happens to be one of the lar largest voting blocks in the country. So as long as they're leaving this money on the table, why don't I pick it up? And that's what he did. So already in December, it was clear that the contempt that the media felt for the working class was going to backfire against the media. And they never, never, never saw that coming. Uh, another piece that I wrote a little bit later uh, I compared the events of 2016 to a year that some of us elderly folks remember very well, which is 1968 in American history, where you had a super divide, you had the baby boomers in their youth now in the streets demonstrating and more against the Vietnam War. You had Democratic Party that was uh, transitioning, to use the currently uh, au courant word, from a sort of Scoop Jackson, uh, Hubert Humphrey party into a, uh, what was his name, uh, McGovern, George McGovern party, which eventually became the Bill Clinton uh, party. And so the Democrats were beginning to move left, and the Republicans under Nixon were filling that gap again. That was one thing that was going on. So I, I look back at the 1960s, especially 1968 a year, I remember pretty well because I was a freshman and sophomore in college and, and said, what lessons can we learn from 1968? And that was a, another piece that I wrote here. Let me just quote a couple of things from that. I did a piece uh, called Three Things Trump Could Learn from Nixon's 1968 campaign. This would have been in July of last year. Stop me if you've seen this movie before. On the Democratic side is a wounded, unloved establishment candidate tied to the outgoing administration and bearing the burden of a failed war and the challenge of, uh, challenge of an insurgent candidate from the left. 
That would be, of course, Bernie Sanders in, in our contemporary context. In the Republican corner, we have a familiar face, equally adored and despised by the electorate, and unanimously loathed by the media, courting a silent majority, pledging to make peace and restoring national honor. America 2016, no, America 1968. No historical parallels are exact, of course, and the Anus Horribilis of 1968, a year that saw, for those of you watching on the videotape replay, saw the Tet Offensive, two major political assassinations. This is something, when we think about how bad things are, try 1968, right? Bobby Kennedy and Martin Luther King were assassinated within several months of each other, just as the highlight of that horrible, horrible year. Race riots and a contentious political convention that featured pitched battles in the streets and a November showdown between Richard Nixon and Hubert Humphrey is unlikely to be, produced in, be reproduced in all its ugly glory this year. Still, now that Donald Trump has named Mike Pence as his running mate and prepares to engage Hillary Clinton and whichever fellow traveler she chooses, sorry about that, as her running mate, uh, it's wise for him to learn some of the political lessons of 1968. So let's go through them. Uh, with a potentially long, hot summer approaching, he's going to need all the help from history he can get. Lesson number one, never give up. In 1968, Nixon was coming off a heartbreaking presidential loss to JFK eight years earlier and a crushing defeat in the California governor's race a couple of years uh, earlier than 1966. He held his famous last press conference and promised the nation we wouldn't have Dick Nixon to kick around anymore. He was about as dead as a politician can be. But Nixon barreled back into the race, defeating a slew of governors, including Nelson Rockefeller, George Romney, and yes, Ronald Reagan, for the nomination. In a country bitterly divided over the Vietnam War, Nixon grabbed the law and order mantle, which then is now the left saw as a code word for racism, expressed his disdain for the liberal war in court and ran against the Vietnam War by claiming he had a secret plan to end it. His eclectic mix of liberal and conservative positions paid off, even because you forget that Nixon is also the guy that invented the EPA and OSHA and all sorts of the federal regulatory agencies that are, are now have now metastasized beyond our ability to control them. These all started the Nixon administration, not the Johnson administration. His eclectic mix of these positions paid off, and even with a third-party challenger, which you also forget that George Wallace picked up a sizable amount of votes that year, he narrowly nipped Humphrey in the popular vote, but thrashed him in the Electoral College, 301 to 191. So never give up. The thing about Nixon uh, was that he was absolutely tenacious. And in, in doing so, despite the fact that he was, had been left for dead in 66, he became president of the United States. Lesson number two, don't back down. Nixon's slash-and-burn style was perfectly suited to beating Humphrey, the happy warrior, saddled with the deeply unpopular president and Lyndon Johnson. If we go back through that 1968 horrible year, you think I'm making this up, I'm not. It started with the Tet Offensive, which is actually an American military victory in Vietnam, but was pitched by the media, mostly by Walter Cronkite, as a defeat that the uh, North Vietnamese and uh, the Viet Cong had launched this sort of attack all over South 
Vietnam, and it, it shocked the American and South Vietnamese troops for a while, and then they quickly beat them back, but it was considered a, a blow to American military prestige. Then in uh, March of 68, President Johnson came on the television, and you can find this on YouTube. He gives a very long speech, he took national television time, to talk about oil, of all things. And at the end of this speech, he says, and by the way, I'm not going to run for president, which electrified the country because we think of it as a left-right Democrat uh, Republican divide, but it was the left that hated Lyndon Johnson more than the right did. Now, they were the kids in the streets. They were the ones chanting, hey, hey, LBJ, how many kids have you killed today? And when Johnson decided to step down, that was the most amazing game changer, changer because it's now March of, of 68, and he's thrown the election into a cocked hat. Uh, he defeats Eugene McCarthy in the New Hampshire primary in February, but doesn't defeat him by enough for the media to be happy. So they declare McCarthy the real winner of that primary, and that weakened Johnson so much that he decided not to run. Then Martin Luther King was killed. Then Bobby Kennedy was killed. And that's the first six months of 1968, which then goes on to have riots, obviously after, uh, uh, after Dr. King was killed, and then more riots during the summer, anti-Vietnam protests here in Washington, uh, a very bloody Democrat convention with heads being busted in the streets, and then a very contentious, uh, close popular vote, but not close electoral vote election in 1968. And it went on and on. It was the year that just wouldn't stop. Uh, so that was the moral of that story was don't back down. That Nixon, had he, had he folded, I think he would have lost to Humphrey. People actually expected Humphrey to win that election, despite everything. And, and the fact uh, is that he, he didn't. Trump's contempt for the Ivy League educated media, however, knows no bounds. Spurning the advice of the punditocracy and the campaign consultants on both sides. Where's his staff? Where's his media buys? Where's his war chest? Remember, Hillary had a billion dollars, right? Yeah, boy, we could use that billion dollars back. Um, Trump continues to run the leanest campaign imaginable and lets the media do all his heavy lifting for him for free. That really was the genius of that campaign, was that the media, as much as they hate Trump, they couldn't resist. It's catnip to them. And they everything he said had to, you're witnessing it still right now, it's going on just down the street. Every word, he spelled tap with two Ps. My God, this man is a monster. Uh, it, it's, it's, you know, Trump was like the, guy surrounded by a pack of snarling dogs, but he has a stick in his hand, right? And bark, 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 and then he, and then, yip, 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 and then they all run off, chase the stick. That, you know, I say this with love, having been in the media uh, since I was 22 years old. Lesson number three, run right at him. Rather than apologize for being a Republican, and with a good deal of vengeance in his heart, Nixon took his America First message straight into the Democratic stronghold of the Deep South, losing the heart of the old Confederacy to the racist former Democrat Wallace, but snagging everything else except Texas, which Humphrey won. Uh, this isn't the place to discuss this, but this is the point where the Democrats have decided that the parties switch sides 
All of a sudden, every Democrat suddenly registered as Republican. Every Republican said, you know, that Ku Klux Klan is great. I think I'll put on a hood. And it all happened in November of 1968. You can look it up on some of the leftist websites. With the South lost, the Democrats were pushed back into their current strongholds of the upper Midwest and the Northeast Corridor, as well as Washington State. In 1968, California and Oregon were both solid Republican states. Trump doesn't have to win the South because we knew he was going to win the South. So instead, as the selection of Indiana Governor Pence indicates, he's setting his sights, and this is me in July now, on the Midwest, especially Ohio, Michigan, Wisconsin. He won all three of those states, didn't he? Yes. Where strong GOP candidates have been winning at the state level. And that was another key, as you saw Michigan had a Republican governor. Obviously, Pence was a Republican governor in Indiana. Uh, Rauner had gotten elected uh, in, in Illinois. So there was some shaking. You know, I was a native, semi-native Californian. And when, the, when things start doing this, we all go, okay, we kind of know what's happening now. And, but uh, the, the media missed it. Like Alexander the Great, one of my personal heroes, defeating the Persians at Gaugamela, Trump's pointed his smaller forces at the enemy's heart and seeks to strike terror into both the identity politics Democrats and their media allies via the simple expedient of not playing by their rules. So you, uh, with Max sitting here, I hesitate to go into the Battle of Gagamela, but basically it was the case where Alexander the Great and 52 Macedonians armed with steak knives defeated the entire Persian Empire uh, at, uh, at one of the crucial battles as Alexander invaded the East, and he did it by running right at him. And so he comes right at Darius, and Darius goes, oops, turns around and runs, and the Persians give up, and the beginning of the great Alexandrian Empire starts right there at Gagamela. Um, in the capacity of offering free advice to presidential candidates, I also wrote a piece called Five Things Trump Must Do to Win the Election. So he's learned the lessons from 1968, but I gave him five sort of policy points. And I did have the satisfaction of having, I think the president retweeted this piece for me or said, hey, nice piece, Mike, or something like I got an actual tweet from Trump, which was kind of cool. Uh, but more importantly, I sent it to Steve Bannon, who's an old friend of mine uh, from the Breitbart days. And Steve wrote back at, at, right after this came out, and he said, that's the playbook for the campaign. This is the playbook for the campaign. So I will tell you what it is. Here's what Trump must do now to capitalize on the newfound mojo and win. First, keep pummeling Hillary. Does anybody doubt that John McCain or Mitt Romney would have been nice to Hillary? I mean, I thought Trump was actually too nice to Hillary, but compared to the other two guys, uh, he did go right after her. The only presidential candidate in history to run while under federal investigation, Mrs. Clinton has benefited from chummy relationships with media poobahs who have successfully shielded her for decades. And if you don't think that the major media figures are not card-carrying Democrats who really truly wish they were working in the administration, and some of them actually do work in the administration, as you saw during the Trump administration, then you're reading the wrong newspapers. And the Clintons have carefully cultivated the media. Now, I'm 67 years old, so I was at Time. I started at Time when I was 31 and stayed there until I was 
oh, my late 40s. Uh, and many was the party I went to, hosted by extremely well-known uh, media types, lefty media types. And the, the amount of people who had rotated in and out of Democrat administrations and then back to newspapers and back to Democrat was amazing. When I started in journalism, if you left journalism to become a PR person, you were finished. You never got a journalism job again. The theory was you are now corrupted. You will now say anything. You will now write any press release. So therefore, the readers won't trust you. Now, George Stephanopoulos becomes a newsman at ABC, having worked for the Clintons. That's what's happened to journalism in the last 40, 30 years or so. Second, learn a lesson from McCain and Romney. The Maverick was a media darling until he had the effrontery to run against the one in 2008, while Romney was transformed from a successful Mormon businessman into a rapacious ogre. Overwhelmingly democratic and partisan, the media votes with its pens and its cameras every day during the campaign season. I had a friend who uh, was a political journalist, retired now, and uh, was covering uh, one of the elections for a major news weekly. But during the McCain election, he, we've known each other since we were about 21 years old, so he called me up and he said, uh, what's gotten into John McCain? I used to like John McCain. Now he's awful. I said, you only think he's awful because he's running against your guy. The minute he loses, you'll think he's great again. And they do. They think he's great. He's the maverick. Much of Trump's early appeal derived from his combative relationship with reporters, whom he not only doesn't fear, but treats with overt contempt. He should keep doing it. As Churchill said of the Germans, the Hun is either at your feet or at your throat. The same is true of the media. Third, skip the gotcha game. Uh, I'm friendly with the uh, radio talk show host Hugh Hewitt, among other radio talk show hosts. Uh, he was now based here in Washington, which is great. We heard him when he was uh, working out of the OC in Southern California. Uh, and Hugh asked uh, Trump early in the campaign about the nuclear triad. And Trump didn't know what it was. And the Beltway establishment was horrified. What? Somebody said to me, do you know what the nuclear triad is? I said, yes, it's C major. C-E-G. They didn't get that joke. <clears throat> it's a musical joke. Or it's A flat. Whatever you want. It's right. So we all know what the nuclear triad is, right? Missiles, bombers, subs. So he didn't know what the phrase meant, so he kind of filibustered that question. But that's the sort of thing instantly explained and learned. All you had to say was, hey, Mr. Trump, it's missiles. Bombers, subs, dude, that's it. That's the triad. Okay, cool. End of problem. After all, he's a first-time candidate navigating an ocean of wonks who think they alone should decide the qualifications necessary to become president. When people say to me, what's Trump's qualifications? I said, he's 35 years old. He's an American citizen. What else? We go, well, yeah, well, that's not, well, what do you mean it's not enough? Yeah, well, dude, he's supposed to know. He's 35 years old. He's an American citizen. The end. If you don't like it, change the Constitution. A presidential campaign is not a quiz show. So the next time Trump's confronted with an unfamiliar beltway jargon, he should just ask for clarification, answer the question, and move on. The end. And he stopped 
falling for those gotcha questions. You may recall uh, Bush was asked, uh, George W. Bush was asked early in the campaign by some snarky reporter in Boston if he could name, you know, the president of Pakistan. Well, it turned out we later discovered after 9-11 who the president of Pakistan was, but in those days, who had ever heard of the president of Pakistan? Nobody. And a whole bunch of gotcha questions about, you know, who's who. And, you know, it made Bush look like an idiot because he was the governor of Texas. Why would he know this stuff? But the Beltway elite has decided you must know this stuff or you're disqualified or you're unqualified. And Trump eventually just decided that he wasn't going to play that game anymore. Fourth, make it clear to the junior wing of the permanent bipartisan fusion party, that's the Republicans, who's boss now? Despite its success in the congressional elections of 2010 and 14, also leading indicators leading up to the election, the GOP has been whining it can't shape policy without holding the White House. John Boehner here, I always wanted to ask him, well, we only control one-third of one-half of one-ninth of boo-hoo. Here's their big chance. The center-right public is outraged at the Republicans' largely ineffective opposition to democratic progressivism and executive overreach. Let's hope last week's Supreme Court decision blocking Obama's amnesty for illegals and the Democrats' childish sit-in in the House, there was that echo of 19, the 60s again, 68, will stiffen GOP leadership spines, but if not, Trump should do it by actually leading. And fifth, be yourself but better. Remember, these are all principles that the Trump campaign, according to Mr. Bannon, adopted. Trump walks, talks, and acts like the quintessential guy from Queens, from his unpuka accent to his stream-of-consciousness barroom bluster. He's that anomaly, a rich man with a peasant's taste for shiny material things. Now it's time for Trump 2.0. The focused, disciplined candidate we saw last week, this was after one of his teleprompter speeches when they finally got him on the prompter and he was actually very effective. This means focusing on Hillary's weaknesses without fear, bringing Speaker Paul Ryan and, and Majority Leader Mitch McConnell to heel, and staying on message to make America great again. This is right after Brexit. Now, hey, if the Brits can say adieu to the European Union, God, don't I hope my own beloved Ireland will do the same sometime in the near future, and defy their entire political establishment, can Americans do any less? Across the world, there's a hunger for national greatness again, and if Beltway insiders don't hear that message now, they surely will in November. Okay, so that was in the summer as the campaign was heating up. And finally, one, uh, one last piece, and I'll give you a little bit of background on this one. Uh, I, I've been living in California because I'm a screenwriter in Hollywood, and that's another whole story. But I decided I would get in my car and drive back east uh, in the fall. So I did and started off in L.A. and went to, where did I go, Phoenix, Santa Fe, Texas. God, Texas is big. Uh, Arkansas, Tennessee. This was the barbecue part of the trip, uh, North Carolina. And I, I was watching for signs and see, you know, literally signs, Hillary signs, Trump signs. I uh, got off the road a lot, took two weeks to do it. Then I came up through the uh, through Norfolk to visit my uh, retired naval officer brother and up the Delmarva Peninsula to uh, my house in rural New England. And I said, you know, Trump's going to win this thing. It's, it's almost like a movie cliche. It's quiet out there. 
Yes. Too quiet. Yeah. So I was too quiet. We didn't see lots of signs. And I was driving through the sort of cotton area of eastern North Carolina, and all I saw was Trump signs. And the heavily minority areas in North Carolina, all I saw was Trump signs. And I thought, this is very interesting. Again, something's going on. So I led this piece with that observation. In fact, the reason I even wrote this piece was I got a hysterical call from, uh, well, not hysterical, but an agitated call from my editor now at the Post, a woman who edits the op-ed section on Sunday. And she said, you got to help me out here. Uh, I need a thousand words on how Trump has a path to 270. This is two weeks before the election now. And I need it tomorrow. And I said, I'm in the car <laughs> driving. I said, I don't care. Okay, great. So I pulled over to the side of the road. We discussed it. I went to my brother's house. I hold up there for a couple of days writing this piece and closing it for the post. And it begins like this. Driving across the country last week, what date did we publish this? It was uh, October 30th. So it's the Sunday before the Tuesday before the election. Uh, driving across the country last week, it seemed hard to believe an American presidential election is happening a week from Tuesday. Few campaign signs sprout from urban lawns. Partisan billboards along the highways are scarce. Away from the coast, the talk on radio is largely of football and Jesus, not politics. It takes a moment hearing a spot in North Carolina for a U.S. Senate candidate to realize the voice belongs to President Obama, interrupting some country music. Well, there's plenty of chatter about it in the raging echo chambers of talk radio and TV cable news, and that's on the right and the left, of course, which was obsessed, and the cocksure journalist funhouse known as Twitter where the in-the-tank reporters and dispossessed campaign consultants smarting over their collective defeat in the primaries smugly assure each other that Donald Trump will lose in a landslide. Now, now we're a week away from the election, and what are we hearing? The same thing. No chance, no chance, no chance, no chance, no chance. But what if the widely swinging polls, turnout models, and forecasting mechanisms are all wrong. What if the unique historical circumstances of this election, pitting the female half of a likely criminal family dynasty, by the way, I can prove that, but then we'll just let that go for now, against a thin-skinned bull-in-a-china-shop businessman, have invalidated conventional wisdom? What if the ranks of shy voters storm the polls, and in the words of Michael Moore, yes, that Michael Moore, delivered the biggest rebuke in the history in history to the establishments of both parties. What if far from having a lock on 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue come January, Hillary Clinton's margin of error lead, currently between four and five points in the real clear politics average, turns out to be a Potemkin village dependent on high turnout, high turnout among minorities and on getting late deciders to break her way. What if in fact the opposite happens? that Trump's appeal to the disaffected white working class, many of them Democrats, in coal mining and Rust Belt states outweighs the Democrats' traditional advantage in the big cities, flipping a state like Pennsylvania from blue to red. Welcome to the hidden election where those who say they know what's going to happen don't, and those who do know will make their voices heard on November the 8th. So we ran a map of the 
forecast my my own guesses uh, of the uh, which states would go which way, and showed that Trump really only had to do three things. He had to flip three states. He had to hold the North Carolina, and he he had to uh, hold Florida, and flip Ohio and Pennsylvania, and that would be it. He would win. What's Trump's plausible path to 270? In 2012, Mitt Romney won 206 electoral votes to Obama's 332. But this was important. I think this is where the media forgot its own rules. Recall that the Electoral College is a zero-sum game. Every vote that switches, it's like baseball statistics, right? One win and a loss, half a game, whole game. It's both a plus and a minus, so that's not quite as big a margin as it might seem. Current thinking has that there are 11 battleground states that could go either way. Colorado, Florida, Iowa, Michigan, Nevada, New Hampshire, North Carolina, Ohio, Pennsylvania, Virginia, and Wisconsin. In these states, with a total of 146 votes, the election will be won or lost. Okay, everybody understood that on the intellectual level, but not on the visceral level. Here's the good news for Trump. Despite the structural advantages in the Electoral College the Democrats currently enjoy, they start with New York 29, Illinois 20, California 55 already in their pockets. The truth is that Trump need only retain the states Romney won, including critically North Carolina, which is why I went to North Carolina to sort of see what was going on, and then flip the three, these three battleground states, Ohio, Pennsylvania, Florida, game off. It wasn't that hard, is the point. It wasn't that hard. And what we found uh, as the election went on and Hillary won by two, three million votes, all of them in my neighborhood in Los Angeles, oddly enough, uh, the Democrats hurt themselves. You only need one extra vote in California to get 55 votes, not three million extra votes. If they had put those three million people someplace else, they would have won the election. But they didn't. They concentrate all of their people in a very few states, and mostly in a few cities, because it's, you know, it's a, again, a semi-native and part-time California. And California is really a kind of a conservative state, always was, but West LA and the Bay Area outweigh it because there's more people in a very narrow, small, confined space. Also true in Illinois. Illinois is a, red, is a whatever they call it, a red state, I guess, is now uh, of the conservatives. Uh, but Chicago tilts it. Pennsylvania, you have the problem of Philadelphia and to a lesser extent Pittsburgh outweighing the whole state. So what looked, my point is, what looked like an advantage for the Democrats is actually a structural defect. And as, as we found out, uh, Later on, so I analyzed each of the three states, and in Florida, uh, I said incumbent Marco Rubio is 5.6 up over challenger Patrick Murphy. I used as a leading indicator the the Senate races. Now Rubio is a guy you thought would have been finished. In fact, he said he wasn't even going to run again if he didn't get the presidential nomination. But of course, being Marco Rubio, he went back on his word and he ran again, and he beat a weak Democrat candidate, but still a tough state for a Republican to win. So that's 29 electoral votes. In Ohio, which Romney almost won, remember Karl Rove you know, <laughs> desperately looking at this clipboard trying to figure out how Ohio was going to tilt the election for Romney. Uh, he successfully wooed the working class so much that the Clinton campaign has pretty much given up on the bellwether state. And actually, the last minute key thing for me was she didn't, she never went to Wisconsin. 
And I looked, where are they going? She's going to Philadelphia. She's having a rally with Beyonce and Jay-Z. Naturally, a million people show up. Dude, it's a free Beyonce concert, right? Without them, there would have been two people there. <laughs> Chelsea and the little granddaughter. That would have been it. But Trump's in Wisconsin. Trump's burning down the villages in her backyard, and she's not doing anything about it. She was a very lazy candidate in addition to being a, a bad candidate. Uh, and Rob Portman was creaming his opponent in Ohio. And eventually he won by a sizable margin. Pennsylvania was the only one that was a tough one to call. I said Pennsylvania is a state uh, that performs a quadrennial fan dance to tease the GOP, but then reverts to type as the after-hours uh, votes from Philadelphia and Pittsburgh come flooding in. In Connecticut, we have the same problem. We have competitive election until all amazingly a bunch of ballots fall off a truck in Bridgeport, and then the Democrat wins. It's just stunning how this happens every time. The RCP averages show Clinton with a healthy 5.2 lead. This is in Pennsylvania on the eve of the election. But savvy observers know you also have to figure in a small but significant vigorous for the Democrats as last-minute poll irregularities are discovered. So Trump's path in Pennsylvania was tough. A Trump wave, especially among disaffected Dems and outsourced steel workers, could flip the state, but it will be hard. Down-ballot leading indicator. This is the, the final one. Pat Toomey is clinging to a 1.3-point lead, uh, lead over challenger Katie McGinty in a state that often retires new GOP hires after one term, 20 electoral votes. So that was it. That was the ball game right there. And the only reason that I and Selena Zito, Selena Zito got it right too. She's from Pennsylvania. She knows Pennsylvania. And she did some excellent reporting. Go back and look what she wrote. Uh, uh, talking to the disaffected, white working class in Pennsylvania that, was, that eventually made that state flip. The truth is, and we'll open up to questions now, this is an election not just between Clinton and Trump. Doesn't it seem like it was a thousand years ago? <laughs> like, who's Hillary Clinton? We don't even remember who she is. Uh, but a whole raft of political antagonists in Barack Obama's fundamentally transformed America, urban versus rural, old versus young, Makers versus takers, sorry about that. Taxpayers versus recipients. White collar versus blue collar. Harvard versus the heartland. Manipulative consultants and biased reporters versus honest Americans who, however naively, believe that their vote really does matter. Many have felt apathetic or disenfranchised for decades. The question is, how many of them are there? And are there enough of them to hold the GOP line and deliver the three crucial states to Trump? We'll soon find out. And we did. So with that, let's open it up to questions and uh, arguments. And thank you. So now that I've proven what a genius I am at predicting the future, I can make a, make a fool of myself with answering the questions. Mr. Marano, yes, sir. Yeah, the uh, column of yours that uh, made the most impression on me was not a horse race column. It was one that I printed out, and it was revelatory. And I don't remember, in my market, you know, they have different headlines, people, they put different headlines on, but it, it was the so-and-so's, I don't remember if it was the elite or, or what, really hate the Trump voters. Yeah. Uh, that, that was that first column I quoted. Yeah, column. yeah. Yeah. Well, that, uh, I, don't, I don't know how to say it, but to, to, to me, that grabbed me more than anything else. Yeah. Um, that actually, now that I think about it, that was the column Trump tweeted. 
was that, that one. It clearly resonated in the Trump camp. Sorry, go ahead. Yeah, no, well, I just wanted to make that comment. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, uh, let's go to the back here. Yes, sir. Get back to your next concern. Uh-huh. Well, yes, and they did. That's the amazing part. Yeah. Eight years of media being full of sycophants, and now they're, now they're geared up and their, their blood is boiling. Can Trump withstand this full onslaught? Can, can he? Uh, well, you know, my answer would change every 20 minutes, you know, depending on what's going on on Twitter right now. Uh, I will say... I think they've weathered the Russians hacked the election because you know the Republicans and the Russians are such good friends that I think that meme is kind of gone. Uh, the New York Times is now disavowing its own stories from two months ago that said the Russians uh, that we were listening in on the Russian ambassador and blah blah blah. And we picked up some of the Trump people and now they say, oh no, we never we never do Trump people here. I just it look, it's a crazy time. So let's kind of let it sort itself out. Uh, they threw. Flynn to the wolves, which I think is probably a mistake, although not a lot of people in the intelligence community that I know are mourning him particularly. Uh, but you can't encourage them. So we'll have to, it's going to be, it's, as I just came back from uh, General Grant's siege line at Petersburg, Virginia, where I was over the weekend. He said, I tend to stay on this line all summer and fight it out. And, and that's what Trump's going to have to do. Uh, Brandon, yes, sir. Uh, the takeaway that from your talk and from what's going on is the Democrats are in complete disarray. And it would seem that Trump is going to have to worry more about keeping his own congressional members together in order to move his agenda forward. Let me see. I, I think I can read this question like Karnak, the Magnificent. Uh, who is John McCain and Lindsey Graham? Am I right? Okay, yeah. good. But yeah. my question is, how how likely do you think that Trump's going to be able to keep the right on his side? In, in I think winning is everything. Yeah. It's as simple as that. Yeah. Leadership, it goes back to leadership, and if, if they run, you know, it's Alexander at Gagamela again. I mean, right now the Democrats are like the Persians under Darius, and they're all scattered in all directions. And the question is, will they regroup and say, hey, there's only... 62 Macedonians with steak knives, so maybe we should go like attack them again. Uh, but it's, 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 this, this is being fought out literally on an hourly basis. What do you think McCain and Lindsey Graham are going to become Democrats? Uh, right after Joe Manchin switches parties. Yeah, yes, sir. Yes, sir. My name is Kathy Barton with the Pakistan Inspectorate, and my question is Donald Trump come across as a very scared shooter. Uh huh. That attracted uh, uh, to white working class. They, 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 I feel they are such memorized by him that they didn't want to consider any other uh, candidates. So, what is in Donald Trump that appealed to American white new color? Well, I wouldn't say just white. I think he got a higher percentage of the black vote this time than uh, than uh, Romney did, or that um, perhaps even McCain did. He got a sizable percentage of the Hispanic vote. As I said, I think he comes across, he's a rich guy, or maybe he's not, I don't know. Uh, wow, I just noticed Nick Kristof yesterday called for someone in the IRS to break the law and leak the president's tax returns. That'll really endear you to America, Democrats. But however much money he has, uh, he acts like he's the guy from Queens. He, he doesn't have a Manhattan, you know, sort of mid-Atlantic accent. He has a very strong 
Woodside, Queens accent or wherever he grew up. Uh, I think he's, because he's not a particularly articulate, he's voluble, but he's not articulate. And so, which is why they have to focus him with these uh, 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 teleprompters. Um, but I think he has a, an, an odd appeal. I can't even explain it myself, and I may in part be resistant to it, but he wasn't running for me or you or anybody in this room. He was running for people that don't pay any attention to politics. Oh, I love him. Okay, well, that's good. Uh, I'm sure the room's bugged and it's going straight. The NSA has got us and it will go straight back to the White House. So he'll hear. Yeah, yes, sir. Uh, Steve Allen Campbell Research Center, just to confirm with your analysis about the Electoral College, uh, I, did a, a, I figured out a way to average all those predictions that all the pundits would Was that the, the, R, the RCP polls or, or just well, in general? And Larry Sabdo yeah. and, and all the others. I just took all of them and I put them in a big spreadsheet and I figured out a way to uh, digitize their predictions essentially and then average them. What I found was that after the election was over, that the only states that the aggregate prediction was wrong uh, were uh, uh, in Florida and North Carolina, and in the three industrial states. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, but what you found was that each predict prediction, uh, the different pundits would would, would sit, and I, I can tell because I can look at this to see the pattern. They look at it and go, "Oh, well, that's funny. This this shows Trump has a chance to win." Well, then that can't be. So I'm going to flip a couple of these states back together, and then we do different states. Right. So you average them together, you eliminate the error. So they had it within their own uh, data what was going on, particularly after the Washington Post came out with the whole of the industrial states in I think of September that showed Trump gaining like crazy. The FLCIO did a study back in February, I think it was January or February of the election year, showing uh, Trump uh, doing very well among the union members. Right. It's what they call confirmation bias, and I fell victim to that in the in the last piece I just just for the election because I really didn't think he'd win Michigan and Wisconsin, but he didn't need to was the point of my piece, uh, but he did, you know, uh, and and everybody was just assuming that he wouldn't. And again, I think it helps for me being an outsider. I don't talk to the political reporters. In fact, I've been blocked by almost all of them, starting with Glenn Thrush, which is really a badge of honor. Uh, yes, sir. There was a lot of language in this in the question of open society, mm -hmm. globalization, which I think now is labeled the whole democratic form. And when you look at Silicon Valley, 450 million versus 170, whatever, thousand for Trump, you look at the globalists and those who are for the global eyeballs, who really want this global one, new world order, whatever it says, do not like the nationalists invested so happy. Do you think mm -hmm. there's going to be a continual resistance? Yes. Yes, uh, and because in Hollywood we hear this all the time. If you go in and pitch a movie uh, that's kind of celebra celebrates America, I mean, and again, I let me start by saying you never pitch a political movie ever. It's just suicide. So, but assuming that there's some elements of it that might feel that way, the executive is going to say, "No, we don't want to be jingoistic." And jingoism is the word that you hear in Hollywood all the time. So. We don't want to go rah rah Team America. So then, naturally, the guys that did what South Park did, Team America, World Police, which is obscenely hilarious, uh, but making fun of that very thing. Whereas, if you take the uh, the anti-American position, uh, then you're speaking truth to power, even though everybody you know has also adopted that exact same position. So again, it goes back to which team am I rooting for? Uh, you're going to see this. I just wrote a piece last Sunday in the Post saying Trump's got to prepare for a long fight. This is going to be an eight-year fight, or certainly a four-year fight. If the Democrats have their way, it'll be a 
four-month fight because they hope to impeach him and get rid of him. But it's, it's not, uh, you know, politics ain't beanbag, as Mr. Dooley said. Yes, sir? Uh, Four-year fight. Uh, what is it? What, what do you think his staying power is? When is he going to have had enough of all of the foolishness and go back to Trump Tower? Well, he's going to serve out his first term, for sure. I mean, the only person who's ever resigned was Nixon. Uh, and, and I think were we in that situation today, Nixon wouldn't have resigned. He would have done what Clinton did and said, the heck with you. Right. We're just going to sit here and tough. You know, what did Clinton say to, uh, to uh, uh, Dick Morris? Well, I guess we, we have to win. You know, yeah, so he did. Uh, one, of the, one of the pieces I read says, stick, stick to it. Don't give up. Yeah. Yes, ma'am. Did you have your hand? Yeah. Hi, my name is Jenna Can you stand up so I can hear you? Sure. Yeah. Well, they're a geographical minority party, literally. Would you, would you say that you see the possibility of the American government becoming something like the super-presidency? Well, I mean, you could compare it to the Russian, you compare it to the French presidency, which is a very powerful office, as you know. Uh, no, I don't think so. I, I spent a lot of time in Russia myself, but during the Soviet period, I actually left, uh, let's see, Chernobyl blew up while I was there. That was fun. And then uh, I left two weeks before the coup against Gorbachev. So. Uh, it was right as, as the thing was, was turning. Uh, Americans, Russians are very different people, as you know, and the, the, the wish for a strong man in America is not as strong as it is in, say, formerly Tsarist Russia or, or even formerly Imperial Germany. Uh, I, also, I don't think that President Trump wants to be that guy. Uh, I think the fact that the Democrats refuse to accept the results of the election is a real problem. And as some of us have pointed out, the last time the Democrats refused to accept the results of a Republican victory, they fired on Fort Sumter. <laughs> How'd that work out for you, Democrats? Not very well. Yeah, yes, sir. Hi, sir, first class uh, student here, I'm Franklin Student. Um, with this, as you'd say, populist nationalist uh, wave going across the United States, the UK, what is your prediction? Uh, with Marie Le Pen, France. Yeah. Uh, I think she's going to win, but it's, it's hard because the French system, as you know, has double things. So what they generally engineer is, uh, you know, the top two finishers have to win and then they have a runoff election. And that allows all the people that uh, might have voted for her to then vote for the other guy because they, they usually confuse it with multiple candidates in the first round. That said, uh, I lived in Germany for 10 years and I live in Ireland now, so I'm, I'm pretty close to the European political uh, developments. And I think there's a very good chance she could win. I'm not predicting it because as Yogi Berra once said, predictions are tough, especially about the future. So uh, I, I don't know. Uh, I think Gerhard Wilders will win in Holland. Uh, and then maybe the New York Times will stop referring to him as a far-right candidate. Just, just uh, uh, Madame Le Pen is called a far-right candidate. Uh, you know, with the way the media frames these arguments is we have the progressive candidate and the far-right Nazi nut. You know, never do they give them the respect of the alternative party, the other side, the 
the, the voice of the people that aren't voting for the first party. Uh, but you're seeing a huge tidal wave. And I ran into uh, Nigel Farage a couple months ago, and I said, hey, Nigel, will you please come to Ireland and help me get Ireland out of the European Union? He said, oh, of course. I said, well, I'll cause trouble in Ireland if I can. Who's, yes, sir, here. You know, I don't, you know, I don't know. I actually think that he's the most surprised guy in America. Yeah. What? I'm the president of the United States? Yeah. I thought we were just kidding around here, folks. <laughs> You know, it's like the, my friend Dale Lona wrote a great movie called uh, uh, My Cousin Vinny, which I know you've all seen. And it's like when Ralph Macchio says, I shot the sheriff, I shot the sheriff. And they say, that's a confession. You shot the sheriff. And they put him in jail. So I think, you know, that's a very New York-y way to react to something. I'm the president of the United States. Uh, he's president of the United States. And I think he's realizing with this tremendous, you know, this, the resistance, I expect us to start singing Le Barcies any minute now, and wearing little berets and smoking the gitans, uh, at least the Democrats. I think he's surprised by that. And now he's realizing, holy mother of St. Patrick, this is real. As I said on the night of the election, we ran a live blog, and periodically every hour or so, as I watched that needle go from 99% Hillary victory to 0% Hillary victory, I kept running the clip from Rosemary's Baby. This is no dream. This is really happening. <laughs> yes, sir. Uh, it's a long time. Uh, regarding the foreign policy, what kind of, or how much of the uh, ripple effect that's going to have, is going to have on Europe and Asia Pacific. You mean the Trump presidency? Yeah. Well, I think it's going to have a big effect because any, you know, the commander in chief's the commander in chief, and in, in, at the end of the day, he's the one that makes these decisions. Uh, certainly, the foreign policy establishment, Trump will be moderated and ameliorated uh, as he moves forward, and a lot of the extreme things that he said during the campaign will go by the wayside, but. The campaign promises, the wall, the immigrant, I guess the immigration bill has come back down now this afternoon while uh, I was preparing for this talk. Uh, those are going to happen. So th those will be fought out exactly as our constitutional system insists upon. Uh, uh, to, to go back to this lady's question, we're not a, a monarchy. Uh, we are constitutional republican. As I argued in last week's post, we don't want harmony within the Trump administration. You know, the times Bannon's, yeah, he's yelling at Bannon, Ben's yelling at Reince, and blah, everybody hates everybody else. That's a good thing. Harmony gets you in trouble, right? Germany and Japan found that out in World War II. Everybody agreed it was a great idea to attack America. Oops, right. <laughs> so that's a problem, let's see. We got a couple more minutes back, are we, we good? Oh, good. Yes, sir. Right here. My name is Mahmoud. I'm a graduate student. Uh huh. Sorry? I'm from Afghanistan. Afghanistan, yes, sir. My question is with regards to Trump's policy on Afghanistan specifically, given the fact that the Obama administration has reduced the number of U.S. troops from Afghanistan. Yes. Yeah. 
had 400 soldiers on the ground. Yes. Taiwan are more active than ever before. They are in control of more territories. The Russians are now aligning with them. And uh, the question of safe havens of the Taiwan Authority based on the Pakistan cities in Quetta, in particular the Quetta Shura, yeah. Well, I, I, my area of foreign policy expertise, such as it is for an opera critic, is uh, <laughs> mostly confined to Europe and uh, Japan. But uh, it, look, the Afghan war has gone on since 2001. It's now 2017. That makes it four times as long as World War II. So it seems to me a bit excessive. Uh, the Obama administration said, and you can go back and look on YouTube how many times former President Obama has said, I ended the wars in Afghanistan and Iraq, and as you point out, we still have American troops in both those places. Thirdly, Afghanistan, I think, is much more complex than Iraq. Uh, and again, coming from my point of view, which is as a cultural historian, uh, as you know, it's the graveyard of empires. Alexander came a cropper in Afghanistan. Uh, the Russians tried it once or twice. The, the Brits tried it twice and got sent home in a pine box both times. So the Afghans, as you know far better than I, are, are a very proud people in a unique setting uh, where you are uh, between Iran and Pakistan and India and uh, a very turbulent part of the world. I don't know the answer. I just don't know the answer to that question. I think Trump would like to get us out of the Middle East. Uh, I think it's gone, uh, as an American, uh, I think it's gone on far too long. What the end game is, I have no idea whatsoever. And I really think that's up to the Afghani people to sort it out. Uh, yes, sir. Hey, uh, thank you for doing this. I'm Elliot Waldman, and I'm the news producer of Tokyo Podcast. Is that NHK? No, it's different. Okay, sorry. Yep. Um, but uh, I was wondering, you know, I, I covered the, uh, the recent election and did what a lot of other journalists did, which is travel around the country talking to voters about how they feel about the candidates. And, one of the kind of realities that a lot of us came face to face with was that a lot of the voters just didn't really care about a lot of the same things as a lot of what the media cared about. You know, yes. talk to people about a lot of the controversies that were um, causing a lot of people in D.C. to go into hysterics, but a lot of people um, in the rest of the country just they said, well, you know, I think they're less. Oh, well, I don't think that, I think that's absolutely true. The Beltway uh, obsessions are not. Uh, those of, I mean, look, most Americans never even heard of General Mike Flynn. Let's face it, yeah, right. right? I mean, just true. I'm sorry, go ahead and finish your question. No, I, I'm not that, my question yeah. Well, this election was won by those people who don't care yeah. about yeah. Beltway concerns. They just don't. Uh, and, you know, I, I've told people if you, have, if you come to Washington, which most people, luckily for you, don't, because it's the, imperial, it's the imperial city, it's made of money, everything costs a fortune, and it's your tax money that's supporting it all. Uh, if Americans found that out, I think it, would be, it really would be torches and pitchforks time. Because uh, that's a sea change in the way. I grew up in, a year, in an era, my father was in the Marine Corps, where the, federal government, the words federal government was not a dirty phrase. Now it is. Any, uh, any other questions uh, before we wrap up? Yes, sir. Do you think the use of social media? Yes. That was very important. Sorry, that's a good point. Yes. So the local media tied to social media so that when we had that first immigration thing, yeah. the whole thing that went out globally 
Yes. And then you had riots across airports launched by those 50 open society foundations. Which is run by George Soros. It's funded, funded by George Soros. Yeah. So the question is, is that a, I mean, that is a national security if we keep going down that path. Well, the Twitter is essentially a flap, flash mob organizer, uh, whether it's literally, you know, knocking over 7-Eleven or attacking the duly elected president of the United States. And Trump uses Twitter very well, or not, depending on your point of view. But what I think what I'm still struck by is uh, some well, very close friends of mine. It, whatever Trump says, again, they're the dogs chasing the stick, it enrages them. Like, how can he dare do this? Doesn't he, don't you know that you're the president and you can't be tweeting, right? And FDR was on the radio. And other presidents have used, uh, the LBJ used television. Uh, Kennedy certainly used it very effectively. Uh, so I think really the issue right now over at the White House is they feel they're unmanned, undermanned, outgunned. Uh, much of their budget was already spent by the Obama administration as this administration came in, so they were left with no money. That has changed somewhat, so they're now starting to hire enough people. Uh, and they're being whipsawed by the Democrats who say, uh, well, you haven't fleshed out your cabinet. Yeah, because you're blocking it. Well, okay, but you haven't fleshed out your cabinet, you know. It's like talking to an idiot. Uh, and yet the Republicans are just going to have to swallow it. I mean, this is, this is big boy pants time for everybody in Washington. And it's not going to stop. It's not going to stop. It's going to continue until somebody steams the battleship Missouri up the Potomac River and somebody signs the Articles of Surrender. Uh, any other questions before we go? Okay, that's it. Thank you so much for coming, everybody.